Let us begin. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for bringing us together again to share our understanding and experiences of Proverbs. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts to hear what it is that you want us to hear through Holy Scripture. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today and as we go forward in understanding and gaining the whole idea of wisdom. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. How many of you found the book of wisdom interesting? How many of you read the book of Proverbs? Well, I see a lot of you didn't. Well, Proverbs has a very interesting uh, background, somewhat in the way that the Psalms did. Proverbs were not all just brought together and written in a book around the 5th or 6th century uh, B.C., that's when they were compiled into the book that we have today. Somewhere after the Babylonian exile uh, and around the end of the 5th century, uh, well, no, I would say around the beginning of the 5th century B.C. Okay. Um, but they were originated over a long period of time very much in the same way that the Psalms were, but in a different, they came together differently. The Psalms, as I said last week, were written as prayers to be recited or sung in religious uh, or secular ceremonies by the people probably after the time of uh, King David and Solomon. The Psalms came around, I mean the Proverbs came around gradually in an earlier time period. The Jewish people were very observant of the things around them and also envious of the things around them and would borrow uh, customs and traditions and thinking of those around them because particularly for the time that they were in Egypt, they were among some very well-educated people. Well-educated now, again, for that time, uh, that time period. The Egyptian people were extremely well-educated for, uh, you know, that time. And the Jewish people, the Hebrews, as they were called then, uh, who were sort of indentured servants, copied a lot of the customs and traditions. And they would observe how the Egyptian people's families sort of worked towards developing a place or a connection to the pharaoh. That was extremely important that they would try to get a connection to the Pharaoh. And if you know the story of Joseph, Joseph, uh, how 
he was sold by his brothers to a caravan of people going to Egypt and landed there, you know, as a young uh, person, but willing to get ahead and climbed up to be uh, sort of the right-hand man of the pharaoh. And that became something that the Jewish people later on, when they all migrated to Egypt and became aware of Joseph, that was something that they were also uh, very eager to do, is to climb uh, the ladder of prosperity and develop a name for themselves. Even after they became slaves, that was still important. So family wisdom became extremely important to the Jewish people. Uh, they would call it folk wisdom, you might say. That which was developed within the family and the family observing others uh, who were always above and better than they all were. And they would teach their children. So I think you see a great deal of that. And though it's often worded in a way that we would talk to children, it is intended for all of us. So many of the Proverbs that we read are uh, everyday things, you might say. In fact, uh, Dick brought some up this morning. Uh, he said, <coughs> how is it that it's better to keep your... one of the, the proverbs. It's better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're dumb or stupid than to open your mouth and prove it so. Yeah. Yeah. That is one of the proverbs. Alright. There's a, a number of interesting proverbs and I'll get to that in a little later. Uh, but folk wisdom was important to the Jewish people, and it developed over a, a long period of time, but beginning in the time period between Abraham and Moses. Uh, and then as the Jewish people moved back into the Promised Land after the time of Moses, through the efforts of uh, Joshua and Caleb, uh, that became even more important because what they were doing was they were comparing themselves to the nations through whom they had to go from Egypt back to the Promised Land during their 40 years of wandering. They met and interacted with a number of other nations, all of whom were far more advanced in education and experience than the Jewish people were. And so they copied a lot of that. And we will see how uh, some of that comes from other nations. The Psalms then, uh, or rather the Proverbs then, continued their experience in developing and they came into another form 
uh, of wisdom called natural wisdom or interaction with nature. And that is when they began to realize that there was only one true God who made all things and was above all things, unlike the Egyptians who had many gods and unlike many of the other nations uh, who also worshipped many gods and many spirits. Even the Jewish people were never quite sure of how God related to mankind. That didn't come along until even much later. But they were aware of it. And they were the ones who carried the idea of one true God who was creator of all things. And that was what sustained them in many ways when they were put up against a number of other uh, faiths and belief systems. Continuing on, then, as they began to be concerned about their relationship with God and knowing and accepting the fact that he was the creator of all things, how did that affect them and how were they supposed to uh, interact or deal with God? And for a long time, that became very muddled, you might say. Uh, And to this day, it still is. They have never, you know, the Jewish people do not have a central theology. That is, one single belief system, as we do, as Catholics and as Christians do. Uh, They do not have a central belief system. In fact, when a man is uh, ordained as a rabbi, or not ordained in the same way a priest is, but consecrated in that way, he is then kind of uh, out on his own. He does not have a central authority to guide him in what he teaches others. And that is uh, unfortunate. But that's the way the Jewish people were up until around the 15th century after the Babylonian exile. Remember, it was during the Babylonian exile that the uh, Jewish people began to develop the houses of uh, study and prayer, which then became the basis for the synagogue system which still exists. Uh, Synagogues are technically houses of study and prayer. They are not temples. There is no temple in the Jewish faith, even though you might see Temple Bethel and a number of other buildings that have that on there. Technically, they are not temples. That was destroyed, the one and only temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 AD, never to be rebuilt. It was a sign that God refused to accept the faith of the Jewish people because of their unfaithfulness, all right, and the willing, uh, the unwillingness really to accept 
his form of teaching. <clears throat> now, I'm not putting the Jewish people down. I think we should be more uh, concerned for them in a way because they have really missed out on the love and the understanding of who God really is. But let's go on with Proverbs here. Uh, you'll find that there is there is uh, not a direct relationship between the teachings of Proverbs and the teachings uh, of God because that came and they were developed in a time period when there was far more confusion uh, which didn't allow for them to build a single form of Christian or a spiritual thought, I should say. Not Christian, but spiritual thought. During the period after the Babylonian exile, as you recall, they came back to Israel and were determined they were going to follow the law. The law as it was laid out uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has always been attributed uh, to Moses. Well, unfortunately, we can prove that most of the teachings of the book of Deuteronomy, good as they are, did not come from Moses, but came from a period much later. But after the Babylonian captivity around uh, the end of the 16th century BC, the Jewish people were more determined uh, to be concerned about the law. So instead of worrying about their relationship with God, they developed a greater understanding and a relationship of observing the law and thinking that in doing so, they were then honoring God. Well, unfortunately, that didn't work out. That was not God's idea. But nevertheless, God pursued uh, because he was hoping and is still hoping that they would come back to understand and believe in him as they, as he would want them to. When they built the, or rebuilt the Temple of Solomon after the exile, uh, with the help of Nehemiah and Ezra, uh, and the king of Persia at the time, first Cyrus the Great, and then Xerxes, and then Artaxerxes, uh, with the help of those kings, they rebuilt the, the temple. But remember, the temple was where they felt that God was. And of course, they didn't have the Ten Commandments any longer, that and the Ark of the Covenant that was destroyed by the Babylonians back around the beginning of the 6th century B.C. So what did they put in the temple as their center uh, of God? And it was the scrolls of the scriptures that were written up to that date. And in synagogues today, that is what they have in their uh, tabernacle part, or the Holy of Holies, as they call it, uh, is the scrolls of the Torah. Uh, 
But unfortunately, the Torah, if they include the book of Genesis, was not written until the 5th century B.C. And so the Torah was never really uh, completed, you might say, until long after the idea of worshiping the Torah began. Sort of the back end too. I would generally use another word in there, but I won't. Uh, but as time went on, things became more muddled because not only did they have to resettle in Israel and many of those, because they were in Babylon for nearly 50 years, so many of the people that came back had never been to Israel before, and there, be, there developed a, uh, a problem, a clashing of interests and ideas between the people who never left Israel and those who came back from Babylon. Not only did that happen, but then you had the problem of the Persians being overrun by the Greeks, and then, of course, later the Greeks being conquered and overrun by the Romans. So you had Hellenism, that is the Greek culture, being imposed by the Seleucid kings. Remember the Greek Empire after the death of Alexander the Great in the 4th century uh, sort of broke up into 10 different factions or 10 different uh, areas of responsibility. Five of those were in North Africa. They became the Ptolemy kings. And the other five were in uh, the Mideast area, including Israel. And those were the Seleucid kings. And the Seleucid king Antiochus Antiochus IV, Epiphanes they called him, uh, tried to enforce the Hellenistic or the Greek culture onto the Jewish people uh, during the 3rd and 4th centuries. And so that sort of muddled what things were going on. So it was a very tumultuous time period. And so they turned to God in many ways and developed a form of uh, what is called divine wisdom, or an interest in who God was. They were constantly looking for God's help and protection, which he promised in the covenant. Remember, the covenant promised three major things, descendants, land, and protection. But God kept saying, and we'll read that a little bit today, uh, protection, you know, works in both ways. I will protect you as long as you do things the way I say you should be doing them. But if you don't, then why should I protect you? And so you had this uh, yin and yang type of thing going back and forth between God and his people, which has never really been totally resolved, I'd say. Uh, unfortunately, the, the Jewish faith lacks a great deal of 
personal sincerity. And that is something that the writer of the book of Psalm, uh, Proverbs, uh, has tried to develop. Now, this person, whoever it was that brought these together, and we have no idea who it was, did not do this solely on his own. What he did was he went back to all kinds of writings that were available and brought forth all of the proverbs that were developed over a long period of time. What he did also was sort of, uh, <coughs> pardon me, develop them in a way that would fit um, certain categories. But the proverbs, as you can see, don't have a lot of connection one to the other. He did it the best he could, and I think he did an excellent job of trying to bring similarities together, but each proverb, two or three lines, stands pretty much on its own. Did you notice that? Okay. I really recommend that you read them. It's not very long, uh, and especially the first ten uh, chapters, again, which is not very long, and the last the last four or five chapters, especially the one about the good wife, that sort of that sort of rankles a lot of women. Uh, but really, it sh should not. If you look at it in the right way, it is actually honoring women. And of course, being a good, faithful wife was always and still always is very important. Obviously, the comeback will always be, well, what about the husband? You know? <laughs> well, you got to understand that this was written in a culture where women were seldom ever discussed. Now, next week and the following weeks, we'll get into sort of a controversial subject along those lines, but I'll leave that until next week. Um, the whole idea of the last chapters of the book of Proverbs in reference to the good wife really honors all of those who try to follow the rules of decorum in the household. Okay. Any questions? Yes, Dick? Scripturally. Yes. It seems like a lot of the proverbs are couple, couple. Yes. But sometimes they're like six. Yes. But they're still broken up into two, two, and two. Yes. And then you see the major headings in the middle of, starting with like 18, there's 18. So can you comment a little bit about the structure? All right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the Proverbs, as well as most Jewish writings, was done in a poetic form. And the biggest, or the most important element, you might say, is comparison. They will make a statement, and then they will repeat that statement in different uh, or separate words. Let me, let me just kind of randomly take Anyone 
there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. All right. Now, that by itself doesn't sound like it means anything. All right. But you have one thing that is comparing itself to another. In other words, the Lord is interested in specific things. And don't go overboard and offer him more than what he has asked for. So most of these are done in riddle form or word puzzles. The whole idea of the riddle or the, the word puzzle is very important because at the time most of these were written, remember the only form of uh, entertainment was the written word and developing stories. That's why stories are so important or were so important to the ancient Jewish people. Not only the Jewish people, but all people of that time period. So that's why you have the stories, you know, Job, for example, is a story, but with a message. Uh, Ruth, Judith, Esther, those are all stories. They are not history. They are more like a historical novel. The circumstances around them are historical, but the characters and the main incidents are mostly, uh, I hate to use the word fiction, but, uh, you know, they are contrived in order to fit a story form with a message. All right. But I want to go into some of these and, and then we'll try to come up to um, let's go to chapter 6 because at the end of chapter 6 there's uh, something I want to talk about. My son. Uh, most of this is addressed to my son. But remember Son, particularly the firstborn son in a Jewish family, was the king or the king or heir apparent. And they really, uh, it is a very honor to be the firstborn son in a Jewish family and still is to some degree today. It says, my son, if you have become if you have uh, become surety to your neighbor, given your hand in pledge to another. In other words, one is a statement, the next one explains it. You have been snared by the utterance of your lips and caught by the words of your mouth. Right. Those are two things that are comparisons again. So do this, my son to free yourself since you have fallen into your neighbor's power. Go, hurry, stir up your neighbor. Give no sleep to his eyes. Uh, put a sticker here for my own benefit. Uh, nor slumber to his eyelids. Free yourself as a gazelle from the snare or as a bird from the hand of the fowler bird from the hand of the fowler is used several times in other parts 
of the word. <coughs> in other words, if you get mixed up with your neighbor, overdo it. So I'll give you a little, give you a little example. Years ago, my older sister, who was very, very good-looking and outgoing and so forth, had several boyfriends. And my mother was not always pleased with some of these fellows, you know. <laughs> so the ones that she didn't like, she would invite them over for breakfast, dinner, supper, just put so much attention. And oh, they just thought that they were the king. Well, what she was really doing was bringing them over to have my sister see the faults of these individuals and to have my sister get so much of them that she didn't want any of them. <laughs> but that sort of backfired one time on my mother when three of the fellas showed up practically at the same time. <laughs> and I'll never forget, I, I, I was, I don't know, my sister was a, four years older than I, so I would, must have been around 12 or so. But I do remember the situation where the first one was brought into the sunroom. Uh, the second one, when he showed up, uh, was, uh, I guess my sister went with a brief walk with him or something like Anyways, they tried to separate the three. <laughs> Anyways, but my sister finally got the message. One at a time and make sure mother approved. <laughs> uh, most of the Psalms, I, I'm sorry, Proverbs, um, are two or three liners. And that is where they are comparing. Go to uh, the Well, I right, just go to uh, chapter 8 here. A discourse of wisdom. Does not wisdom call and understanding raise her voice? Well, on the top of the heights along the road, at the crosswords, she takes her stand. By the gates, and these are stories, this is not just two-liners here. By the gates at the, the approaches of the city, in the Entryway, she cries aloud. To you, O man, I call. My appeal is to the children of men. This is wisdom who is now being personified, and you'll see that more and more through this book and the next two that we'll be talking about. Right. But if you go over, well, if you're still at... Uh, Chapter 6. There's two things there. Chapter 6, verse 23. For the biting is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and a way to life are the reproofs of discipline. All right. The lamp and the teaching. If you go to Psalm, now, this is Psalm, not Proverbs. If you go to Psalm 119, 
verse 105, you'll see almost the same wording. O Lord, your word is a lamp to my lamp to my feet. No. Oh, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Yeah. All right. So you see that the words here are often used elsewhere. And you'll see some of that even in the other writings of the books. So we know that one man did not write all of these proverbs. They were written at different times, different places, under different circumstances, and they were borrowed often and reused elsewhere. Look down at uh, verse 30 and 31 of chapter 6. Yes. Men despise not the thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. Yet if he is caught, he must pay back sevenfold. Anyone know where that was used? All right. That is the whole premise of the book and the play Les Miserables. That is the essence of that entire story. Remember, Jovert would not release his hold on Jean Valjean, who stole a loaf of bread. He broke a window and stole a loaf of bread to feed his family. And he was arrested for that and put in prison. But after 19 years in prison, they finally released him. But Jobert still would not give up and insisted that he did not fulfill enough punishment. So this psalm fits that, and that is the whole basis for that book, even though the, the original part of Les Miserables runs around a 1,000 pages. Um, you can get a condensed version, which I think is extremely interesting. And if you haven't seen the play or the movie, I would recommend you read the book first because it makes uh, the play and the movie uh, a lot more meaningful. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyone have a question? Yes. That is Psalm A. Yeah, you're talking about Psalm or Proverbs? Oh, lame is? No, that's pro in Proverbs. Proverbs 8, verses 30 and 31. No, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs 6. Yeah. And earlier, I was talking about. Uh, verse 23 and its comparison to Psalm 119. Okay. If you go over to uh, Psalm 9, uh, uh, Proverbs, not 
excuse me, I get the two mixed up uh, so often, and uh, every time I teach this course, I trip over this. In Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, fear of the Lord in this case really meant fear. As I said last week, I believe, the original idea of the relationship between God and man was one as, you know, me, Tarzan, you, Jane. Uh, it was the idea that the king, like Pharaoh, was the supreme ruler. And whatever he said went, and if he said your head went, it went. Uh, and so fear of the Lord was just that. Now, as time went on, and a better understanding of who God was, and the fact that God was love and wanted the best for all of his creation, fear began to change to revere or reverence. But in the early days, fear meant just that. Okay. But still, the wording is has a great deal of meaning. The beginning of wisdom, or you may see this in other places, it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's just worded slightly different. The meaning is the same. In other words, our reverence for God and understanding of who God is for us is where wisdom really starts. And ladies and gentlemen, I really, really want you to get to understand the whole idea of the virtue of wisdom. Yes, Madge? Well, why would they fear God when he's good? Well, they didn't know that, though, in the early days. You know, they didn't have the time uh, of experience, you know, the experience of to, you know, really be involved with him. Their relationship began with the idea of Moses and his relationship with God. I guess but, on the other hand, there's a lot of people today that don't believe in God or probably fear of him, huh? Well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, I had somebody just the other day, or not the other day, but a week or so ago, asked me, are you afraid to die? And I said, no, why? Why do you ask? I said, well, I'm afraid. This person said, I'm really afraid to die. I said, well, if you have a good relationship with God, and God is love, why would you fear dying? Because you're going to be with him who is love. And... <clears throat> That didn't satisfy this person, unfortunately. <laughs> All right. Uh, but the whole idea of God and fear went together until people began to realize who really God was. All right. And 
Unfortunately, as you've just pointed out, you know, if you don't know God, obviously fear is going to be uh, an important part of your life. Yeah. But now, if you drop down to a few verses after that, it says, the woman folly is fickle. All right. Wisdom is the positive side. Folly is the negative side. For a person who does foolish things, and the word folly comes from the word foolish. All right. Yes. Oh, oh. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, chapter 9, verse 13. What what do you have then? A woman folly is raucous, utterly foolishness. She knows utter, utterly foolishness. She knows nothing. Yeah, well, yeah, that's quite a bit different. That's why, as I've pointed out before, but continue to do so because a lot of people miss the point. But when people say, I follow only the, the Bible and exactly what it says, you know, this is fundamentalism. Uh, you're going to be really confused if you have a half a dozen Bibles because they all say something slightly different. It's the message, you know, the Word of God. The Bible is the message that God is trying to get across, not the individual words, because they change, as we all know. I just finished reading or recently finished reading uh, a biography of Thomas Jefferson, and he did a lot of writing. Of course, he wrote the Constitution as well as the Declaration of Independence, uh, not totally alone, but he was the major contributor there. His personal writings were extremely formal, and his writings to other people, uh, which are all still in, available, in the Library of Congress were very, very formal. And that is the way people spoke. And that was only, you know, 250 years ago, roughly. Uh, you can imagine two or 3,000 years how things have changed. And there are several words that we use today, common words that we use today, and had a totally different meaning back at that time. Okay. Or, in, in the case of the Judaism, or Hebrew, there's a number of words that were translated into English uh, that are totally different. The meaning today is much, much different than they were at that time. The biggest word that I can think offhand is the word name, N-A-M-E. Name in Jewish, ancient Jewish writings and conversation was much different in that time period because the word name meant the entire person, not just what he or she was called, but their whole being, what they stood for, who they were, what they were, and so forth. So that when you say, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, etc., 
what you're talking about really is I am worshiping the whole idea of God, the Trinity. And that I find helps you, if or should help you, in better understanding uh, a lot of prayers and religious writings. Because when they use the word name, they are talking about the whole idea of who a person stands for, what he stands for, who he is, and so forth and so on. And so when you talk about God in that respect, you know, there's a much, much broader meaning. Excuse me. The reason I wanted to bring this up, the idea of the woman folly is fickle, etc., regardless of what it says. You're going to be seeing a lot of the words here in the female gender, female uh, concept here. And as we get into Sirach, uh, the Book of Wisdom itself, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see a great deal more of that. And I, I want to have you not overlook it. It's important because what it really is is a way of God getting the people ready for the idea of the Holy Spirit. Now, Christ and the Holy Spirit are obviously not mentioned in the Old Testament writings whatsoever. But the whole idea of Christ himself is prophesied in several of the prophecies of, uh, for example, Isaiah. You go to Isaiah 53, chapter 53. Uh, it talks about the suffering servant and describes Christ in a way that only can be done from a prophet because he was inspired by God. But it is God's way of getting people to understand that there is something more coming. And it's getting the Jewish people away from the idea of uh, a woman is uh, only a second-class citizen or, uh, you know, the handmaid of, of her husband. Wisdom is extremely important. Have any of you seen the movie The Shack? Did you get that point towards the end when the woman, Wisdom, was portrayed? Did you see that? Uh, no, the woman, remember the woman in, in the cave? She was in a long white dress. Yeah. Uh, she is representing really the Holy Spirit. How many of you would like to see that movie? It, perhaps if we have time, I will bring it in. And we will show it at the last meeting because it pulls the whole idea, I think, 
of the Trinity together. This is a story, and I won't go into the details of the story, but you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, along with the Spirit of Wisdom, which to me is the Holy Spirit, portrayed uh, by actual individuals, and not in a spirit spooky form or any kind, but as regular people. Uh, I think it, it was an extra, I read the book and then I saw the movie. I, I think that it's just absolutely wonderful. So it might take a little bit more because I think it's a little bit longer than uh, two hours or an hour and a half. Uh, and then I'm sure that it would generate a lot of uh, discussion. All right. So I'll, I will try to get a hold of it and bring it in. All right. Anybody have a, a copy or DVD of it? No. You have one? Could we borrow it? Yeah. All right, good. But uh, it would be worthwhile to... It'd be worthwhile for you to uh, prepare to <coughs> spend a little, little more time here because I think it would generate a great deal of uh, discussion. All right. It is a movie that up front is some very sad uh, things that are happening, but then the whole story goes on to explain why they happen. All right. And the rest of it is, I think, absolutely wonderful. All right. That's called The Shack. And you will bring it in then. All right. I appreciate that. Okay. I sort of lost track of my place here, of what I was trying to do. All right. Uh, if you go over to 14, just the top, the top lines, you'll see this. Wisdom builds her house, but folly tears hers down with her own hands. It's chapter 14. 14. This is again a comparison. Wisdom builds her house. In other words, wisdom is positive. But folly, which is negative, tears hers down by her own hands or her own do. In other words, a person who does foolish things is really destroying something. But a person who is working always with a sense of wisdom. Let me give you a little example. <clears throat> There's a story that I read not too long ago about when the fathers of our country came together to write the Constitution after the Revolutionary War, so this would be around uh, 1779. I think it was ratified in 1783, finally. But around 1779, they had <coughs> what was called the Constitutional Convention. And Jefferson, again, wrote the majority of the Constitution and brought it together for a number of the 
early fathers of the uh, of the United States uh, to ratify. And everyone, you know, as things are even today, they couldn't agree. Uh, one wanted this and one didn't want that and so forth and so on. And they were really having a tr trouble getting a consensus to approve or disapprove or finish this off. And Benjamin Franklin got up and said, gentlemen, I might not approve of all of this document, but I find that it is better than any one document that anyone else could develop. And I've also known that in the past I've been known to change my mind, but always for the better. And therefore, I recommend that we pass the bill as it is. And that settled people down because that brought wisdom uh, to what was chaos before. People recognizing that no one document is going to be liked and honored and approved by everybody. But you have to make compromises from time to time. The person who makes compromise is a wise person. Uh, but compromise does not necessarily mean you go to the negative side. So Benjamin Franklin is known <coughs> as the father of American wisdom, political wisdom. His personal life was another thing. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Uh, Yes. It starts out with with Proverbs. Uh, in a lot of the old ones, there's six or eight introductory comments. Yes. You have Proverbs 1 to 9 are called the introduction. And then you have Proverbs from 10 uh, up to 21, I believe are called uh, the first collection of the Proverbs of Solomon. And it's all about what Solomon does or says. Then you have another collection from 22 through 24, which are the sayings of a wise man. And then from 25 through 29, you have some more Proverbs about Solomon. And they'll all have a little introduction. And then you have some miscellaneous um, proverbs through 31. Does that fit your the breakdown that you have? I think so. Yeah. Just different styles. Different, different sections use the different styles. Yes. Yes. And that's another indication where these were not all written by the same person. Uh, the whole idea of Solomon, again, is not the writer, as many people will swear by, but it is, it is he is not the writer. Uh, there are little telltale things 
within each of these stories that give away the fact that he was not the writer. Right? But he is given the place of being the major influence because Solomon was a very uh, well-respected, very successful ruler back in the 10th century BC. He is the one that built the first major temple of Jerusalem, the one that was destroyed then by the Babylonians in the 5th century. So that temple lasted almost 500 years and was the center of Jewish faith. It was the only temple. That was a rule made by his father, King David, that only one temple. And the reason for that was you can't have sincerity spread all over the place and remain sincere or uniform in any way, shape, or form. And since there were no other ways to corral uh, the Jewish people into all following the same belief system, uh, it was David who uh, decreed that the one and only temple of Judaism would be in Jerusalem. Now, David did not build the temple, but his son Solomon did. Okay. <clears throat> In Fort, yes. Solomon's father was King David, right? Yes. And he had about eighty-six concubines. Uh, so probably more than that. Uh, yeah. Solomon had only one wife. No, Solomon had five hundred wives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's this is where I'm having trouble. Then, how could Solomon give all of his wives? Well, that's why I say he was wise about some things, but not everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have to remember that harems in, in that time period were quite common because what he was doing uh, was really copying some of the kings around him particularly the pharaoh. That doesn't mean that he paid attention for lack of a better. Were they a short-aged man or something? <laughs> no. Uh, I'm sure there wasn't. Uh, they were, The king could, yes, thank you. The king could do anything. And so, you know, I, I can't go into the details, obviously, but uh, Haram was not unusual at that time period. So the numbers are really not important. Um, he just had a lot of wives and a lot of concubines. Uh, and I'm sure he had a lot of problems too. <laughs> so he wasn't the wisest person on earth, but nevertheless, he was actually the most successful. David, David his father, and Solomon were known really to begin the golden age of Judaism, which didn't last too long because Solomon's son, Rehoboam, sort of uh, began to dismantle, you might say, everything that 
his father and grandfather uh, built. Not the temple, but uh, politically. Yeah. See, the, David was the one that brought all of the uh, 12 tribes together uh, because each one had tried to establish their own kingship within. And it was David who conquered all of that and taught the wisdom of having one king over all of those people and following a uniform way of, of governing. <clears throat> and that was followed by Solomon, but then Solomon's son uh, didn't like having to rule over all of those people, so he divided the kingdom between the north and the south, the north retaining the word uh, Israel, or the name Israel, and the south retaining uh, the name of Judah. Yes. And that is where the word Jew comes from. Okay. Right. Any other questions? <coughs> Again, I really recommend that you read the book of Proverbs and pray over them. Each one has something to say. Now, that doesn't mean each one's going to be meaningful to all of you. Uh, it is really one of these that this was this might be meaningful to me and this one won't be, but that's and that's okay. But they can be a source of prayer. Ask God to help you understand. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand uh, what these proverbs are trying to tell you. Now, when we get into the Book of Sirach next week you'll see a great deal of similarity in format, but not so much in meaning or direction. In the book of Sirach, well, let's put it this way. Psalms are almost all secular. There's very little uh, directed towards worshiping God himself or increasing or broadening our understanding of who God is. Sirach is the other way. Sirach is almost entirely um, focused on worshiping the one true God. But you've got to be a little careful. In the book of Sirach, the writer, and that is an interesting story in itself, and I'll get into that next week, uh, but the writer was a Sadducee and very highly in uh, favor of the priesthood, which was in political control during the time period after the Babylonian captivity until the time of Christ. The priesthood was in control politically, socially, and every other way. And he actually was very much in favor of that. And so much of his writings are focused on the Jewish concept of life here on earth, but almost no understanding or concept of life after death. And this is what he is fostering. So you have to be aware of that when you read Sirach 
because we do not believe that. We believe that there is life after death, and we also believe in the resurrection of the body. And you'll read a great deal in Sirach that is against that belief. That's okay. It's something that we have to see and develop in our own minds uh, what it is saying to us. I meant Proverbs, yes. I'm sorry. I do get those two mixed up. Uh, oh, yes. The Psalms very much are in favor of our prayers to God. Yeah. The Psalms have a, a great, I think, a very interesting development as well. But you see, they, the Psalms were prayers that were said or sung because much of Jewish uh, writings and prayers were sung uh, in sort of a sing-song way, not sung in in a melodious way that we think of songs today. Uh, but they were done solely for religious uh, observances. They were done in the temple. They were not prayers that people prayed at home. First of all, most of the people couldn't breathe. Uh, so you had a whole different concept and understanding of prayer and who was praying and why. If you went to Mass this morning, the Mass is talking about the apostles, and this is the Gospel of Luke, the apostles talking to Jesus about teach us to pray. Well, that might sound funny for us to hear grown men uh, asking to be taught how to pray. But that is not unusual when you understand that in Jewish life of that time period, private prayer was not encouraged or, you know, was not helped along because, again, most people couldn't read. And therefore, you didn't have a book of prayers. Uh, praying was done by officials in the temple. And people went along with that. So the apostles never were taught how to pray on their own. And when they saw Jesus praying, and how he was seemed to be refreshed by it, they wanted to learn how to pray also. And that is where we get the Our Father. Now, in Luke's Gospel, the wording of the Our Father is a little different than in Matthew's Gospel. The more understanding and the more familiar is the form in Matthew's Gospel. But it is really essentially the same thing. Not, not as much as we do, no. But they have adopted some ideas of private prayer, but solely on their own. You won't find a Jewish book of prayer, no. You'll find the Torah and the Talmud, as you already know, uh, 
and they feel that by worshiping that and reading that, that they are honoring God. But prayers in the way we think of prayers today, no. Uh, no, not exactly. Well, in a way, yes, there is, there is a, a sort of a form of prayer over, uh, over a meal, yes. Yeah. Yes, it's only on ceremonial days. I don't think that it's on a daily basis. Uh That's a late development. We don't know what he's saying. Well, ask him to translate. Ask him to translate. And where did it come from? Yeah, and ask him if there's a book of prayer. I would venture to say there is. Yeah, but even so, you see, the Jewish people have adopted a lot of Christian ways without realizing it. Just like we have can retain a lot of Jewish ways and we don't always realize it. Yeah. It's a series of do's and don'ts. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, somebody else said that this morning or something similar to that. Yeah, it's a series of do's or don'ts. Yeah. Uh, but it's a way of me really getting into Sirach next week, which I really like. Because it does have some very, very uh, beautiful things to say. And then the last book will the book of wisdom, which to me is the best of all. Yes? <clears throat> One is Jewish or Hebrew and the other is Greek. Yeah. And I'll explain that next week. Yeah. So some of your books may not have the word Sirach in it, they will have Ecclesiasticus. Okay? And that is the Hebrew. Now, the wording is not exactly the same. <clears throat> one one means Ecclesiasticus means church book, whereas Sirach is the last part of the name of the author. But there is a rather interesting story just behind the author. Yes, Madge. Uh, maybe you brought it up and I didn't listen good enough. But when, if they were called Hebrews, when did they change to be Jewish? Well, you have today, today you have three different things to be under, to understand. Israeli is the nationality, Hebrew is the language, and Jewish is the religion. Okay, thanks. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does now, yeah. Okay. Nationality, religion, language. So they've always been Jewish, it's just the Hebrew is their language. Yes. 
Now, before the word Jew came into being in around the 5th century B.C., they were called Hebrews. After that, they were called Jews because they came back to Judah. Yes? Am I right to say that some Jews did private prayers, but most of them did not pray, but long as they followed the Mosaic laws? That's right. Uh, now, we know that, for example, <coughs> in some of the writings, for example, uh, in the second book of Kings, the Hannah. Hannah went to pray in the temple for a son who then became Samson. And so, obviously, she knew how to pray. Praying was only talking to God or asking God for something. And in this case, she was asking for a son. So, we know that prayer wasn't uh, totally unknown to the people. It's just that it was not a common thing. And it was not fostered or encouraged. Not that it was discouraged. No. Yes? Uh, in Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verse 16, he said, Reading it, and it turns out that he was telling that it's him. Yes. So, did the Christian religion then get that Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Um, there's a number of things that, you know, almost too many to, to uh, mention that we use today in a very common way that have come out of, of Proverbs. Any other questions? Well, then let's, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Did you, excuse me, did you have a... You have a name for the. Uh, no, Ecclesiastes is the other name for Sarah. Ecclesiasticus. Now, don't. Ecclesiastes is the other name for Kohelu. Ecclesiasticus is the other name for Sarah. Yeah, Jennifer. Yes. Yeah. I'll I'll explain that next week. The name Sirach is very confusing. And the interesting part about it is that it was written in Hebrew but not accepted until it was translated into Greek. Then, if you don't have either one, then you have a Protestant Bible. Who's it? Yeah, that's the Protestant Bible. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that the Protestant. All right, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts.
because we know that Proverbs and Sirach are not easy books to truly understand and grasp because of their wide range of subjects and the way that they are written or composed, which is slightly foreign to our everyday thinking. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts, and may your Holy Spirit give us an extra measure of wisdom that we might understand all of scriptures and how it relates to you. We ask your blessing on our efforts now and always. We thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.